Hi, and welcome to our series of podcasts focusing on primary care networks. I'm Will Owen, a GP trainee and clinical fellow at NHS England, and each month I'm interviewing a range of people from around the country who are working in or around primary care networks to get their perspectives on some of the benefits, challenges and opportunities that working in networks can bring. This month I'm really delighted to welcome Graham Stretch and Helen Kilminster to the podcast. Thank you both so much for joining me. Good morning. I wonder if I could start by asking you to describe how you came to work in primary care and uh, as clinical pharmacists what your current roles look like. Um, So I started working in general practice about five years ago and the only way I remember that is because that's when my daughter was born. Um, So I was pregnant with my second child and currently on maternity leave and felt that actually wanted a change of work-life balance. and my friend happened to walk into a general practice appointment and was asked, what can a pharmacist do for general practice as a sideline to her appointment? So she came back to my house, we had a coffee, and we had a chat, and and I said, oh, there's tons of stuff that we could possibly do in general practice. There's loads of ideas we could bring. So she asked me, could you come and work in a couple of surgeries around Worcestershire and in our local patch and just show what, what GP is missing out on. So that's what I did, four hours a week, and then it slowly evolved. I became part of um, the GP Federation, which all 32 GP surgeries brought into. Then um, we won the NHS um, pilot bid site for one pharmacist per 32 practices, so the largest pilot site for phase one. And then it was kind of my job, really, to sell the the scheme um, and encourage um, pharmacists to join general practice, but also for surgeries to uptake on the scheme. Um, We did really well. I think at the end of the first year, only three surgeries uh, abstained from the scheme. Um, And then it evolved from there, really. And I've moved on and done my ACP, which is advanced clinical practice. Um, And now I'm working for um, a practice in Birmingham. Um, And I've evolved into a clinical director as well. I'd love to pick up on uh, more around your shared clinical director role, um, but Graham, I know your experience is slightly different. What's your background? So I've been a pharmacist now for 26 years, which is past much feels like it's passed much more quickly than that. So <laughs> I started out my training jointly in hospital and community, which was I think quite unusual back then, but it's becoming more common now. Um, and then largely moved into academia for probably about a decade. Um, coming back to the UK from teaching overseas, I started work in a community pharmacy as I thought to give me time to decide which academic post I wanted to take up. But I found that I actually just loved the patient contact and had missed that really during the time I'd spent in academia. So stayed on. And as I worked in community, so we're talking about 2000 now, um, increasingly I became involved in care of the elderly, nursing home work. Um, back then we had half days in pharmacies and I would spend time that half day in my nursing homes um, trying to help the nurses with the use of medicines and doing medication reviews and over that period then so um, 2005 onwards I would um, start to do joint medication reviews with GPs and increasingly the GPs would say well if you're doing it in the nursing home, why, why can you not come and do it in the surgery? And so, much like Helen and much like many of the people who've been working in GP for a little bit longer, I, um, it evolved. It was an evolutionary process. There wasn't a sudden, here's an advert, apply and join. It evolved. And so, increasingly, my time was taken up more in general practice doing clinics, doing the more traditional medicines management type roles and evolved slowly and slowly to the point where I had in the end to, to, to give up 
community pharmacy because I was spending all of my time in general practice. So if we move forward to about 2010, um, by then uh, the, my local CCG in Ealing were looking at better ways of managing the nursing home patients and together a um, contract to provide care for all of the nursing home beds in Ealing. We have a lot, we have about 1,200 nursing home beds in Ealing was to be awarded and bid for uh, from a single provider. Um, so that process went on and we, we, at Argyle, one of the practices that I'm mainly involved in, we won the contract to provide medical and pharmaceutical care to 1,200 nursing home beds, which very quickly became a very large piece of work and what we found is that by using the full breadth of the pharmacy team, so that's pharmacists and technicians, um, both from very clinical backgrounds in hospital, but also from the community, we had a mixture of um, proprietor pharmacists who worked in their community pharmacy and in the surgery. And we evolved to a team that um, probably numbered about a dozen or so of us very quickly because of the workload involved and, and the, the skills that we could bring to the table, that the, the medics appreciated because it allowed them freedom to practice medicine in the homes rather than be occupied with the um, work, the huge workload around prescribing and medications. So to my mind what we need to end up with if you like are teams of pharmacists in our PCN for example there are seven practices and I kind of envisage that each of those practices in the end will have their own pharmacist mm -hmm. but that pharmacist will be supported by a team of um, pharmacy technicians but also each other and each of us will be hopefully practicing as generalists and I think that is really important. We talk about the specialisms that are available in hospital, we talk about community pharmacists who are if you like I think the most kind of at point primary care practitioner. You know we need advice we can wander into a pharmacy now and get that advice so we need to make sure that those skills are utilized but in the end within the network if we have a pharmacist in every practice working as a team supported by pharmacy technicians if you like the engine room and making sure that they have developed those generalist skills so that they can utilize whichever patient comes to their clinic and be able to manage their long-term conditions because that's largely where our expertise may lie. Also those patients have been recently discharged with multiple medications and those in you know, home domiciliary settings and in nursing homes. If we can have a situation where each of the pharmacists is able to practice in that generalist way, but has been freed up to follow whichever particular interest and specialism they may be interested in. And to, those specialisms will align with the needs of the practices. So for example, right now, the pharmacists coming into our PCN, there's a, a recognition that we're short of skills in respiratory, for example. And so we're going to task initially the pharmacists to develop skills in that area, do the spirometry courses, and be able to take on the management of respiratory patients. Obviously, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, elderly care will also be key factors in being that generalist. But if in, within your networks you have pharmacists with special interests, the thought that one could refer patients to the most appropriate pharmacists for the care of their medications for they can get the best out of their medications seems to me where we need to end up. It's how we get there mm -hmm. and I think we need to recognize those PCNs that don't currently have any or, or have very little pharmacist involvement will will need help mm -hmm. in developing the skills of the pharmacists they take on. Well I know you've done a lot of work on that Graham so what's your perspective on the training requirements for pharmacy colleagues joining new primary care networks? What okay. have you learned about I think about the them? single most important person 
to a pharmacist joining a GP surgery for the first time or in network will be that single named individual, the clinical mentor, which likely will be a GP, but could be a very experienced pharmacist, and the ability to be spending significant, at first significant amounts of time shadowing and if you like being shadowed, seeing real patients and managing the patients, seeing different practitioners and how that's that it might be nurses, pharmacists, it might be paramedics, it might be physiotherapists. Those individual pharmacists need to be given time and space initially to develop and observe and then be observed providing care and getting that positive feedback. I think the single most important thing will be that individual who is named as their clinical mentor and it is a significant investment of time. What we talk about is an, this concept of around 18 months. And that's also then, from a national perspective, there's a training pathway that is provided that, to my mind, provides a foundational level assurance. So if I'm a patient and I'm going to go and see a pharmacist in general practice of any new role, I'm not really familiar, I need an assurance that that pharmacist is competent to take on the role. And the idea of an 18-month period where the, the development of the pharmacist is assisted by their mentor, but also with a national training pathway that involves, you know, teaching, it involves putting together a portfolio that has mentorship on a national level and then also networks where the pharmacists can come together and learn together in learning sets. I think this is a vital component of how we're going to upskill these pharmacists so that they're ready to take on this generalist role that I described. Is that something that all pharmacists coming into primary care and primary care networks will do or is that is that is it just for, for those completely new? To it, it's available to all. Right. And I think the key issue will be to sit down with those new pharmacists, with an experienced pharmacist and with also the clinical director and look at what that pharmacist's pre-existing experience and training and courses, you know, if they've done a diploma, and look which bits are missing. And then from the perspective of the national programme, choose which bits would be valuable for that individual, both in terms of their own personal development, but also to match the needs of the population and the GP practices. But still, the most important part of this will be the local mentorship from their, their clinical. The other thing we've found works really well is networking pharmacists together virtually using messaging apps, actually, so they can ask those simple questions. They can, if they're troubled by something on the discharge letter, they can ask, what does that mean? What would you do? And get that day-to-day -day support. And I think that really helps. And then having the case discussions that are facilitated by the national programme in a local area and getting to know pharmacists who are working locally and the beauty of the PCN project is we are going to literally have thousands of pharmacists and there will be a proper local network and that's what we need to build. It's really important that we network these pharmacists in so they can provide that peer support. Just as anyone would feel uncomfortable about a new role, they need to have that that space to be able to, to say that mm -hmm. um, and also making sure that the expectations are clear. Um, it's really hard when nobody knows what each person can do, when it's a real unknown, a new skill set that comes to a practice that has never worked with this discipline before. It's, it's a completely new page and the mindset has to be completely open. Mm. Um, and it's really important actually when we start looking at training these people, we also need to make sure that they can be quite vulnerable mm -hmm. and it's okay to be vulnerable mm -hmm. and having that local intel over how to refer, how to do bloods, how to do 
really basic things that but it's local and meaningful rather than having quite a national generalist sort of overview of what good practice may look like because when you're in that room and when you're in that pressurized environment in general practice um, even if it's just a medication use review but you might need some further investigations or ordering are you allowed to do x-rays are you allowed to do this are you allowed to do that and that only comes from actually understanding the local knowledge mm -hmm. and understanding what systems allow you to do mm -hmm. so from a a mentoring point of view, yes, the national pathway holds its role and it's something that's visible to all employers to can see that actually this is the pathway, this is the structure. But at local level, within the practice itself, is just as important, if not probably a little bit more important, to, to gain that confidence and trust in that, that new skill set and your own ability. Because sometimes you come in and you feel quite an imposter being in general practice. You don't feel like you should be there because actually, you know, pharmacists have, have always been like so far down the list. But actually you hold a value and you hold a role. And it's really important that our mentors see that. Mm. Thank you both. That comes through really strongly. And um, I know it's some of the learning we had through that first wave of pharmacists entering general practice. You know, initially the assumption was it was all about medication reviews, but uh, there's so much more that pharmacists can bring to that network and to the sort of health of the community if we let them shape their roles in conversation uh, in an open way. I think that comes through really strongly from what you've said. Just to clarify for those that might not know, that national programme, um, of support and uh, does that include um, prescribing and, and who pays for it? Do the practices and networks pay for that or is it funded centrally? So the practices can access funds. These, these, are, these, these training pathways provided are free of charge to the PCN as is the prescribing course. Obviously they will have to release their pharmacists to engage on the study days and to go potentially to university to study for their prescribing qualifications. The number of study days is up to 28 over the 18 months. Okay. But as I say, it's been modularised to fit the needs of individual pharmacists after a training needs analysis. So it might be your pharmacist already has some of the skills that they need, but perhaps they need half of that time. But for someone who's completely new to it, without much existing training, it would be an 18-month pathway with 28, roughly 28 study days away, which might well be local training or it might be um, formal study days. And then in addition, and it is additional, the training towards um, independent prescribing is typically a six-month course. Mm -hmm. And between universities, it varies between a, um, a kind of distance learning model or one, one day a week at university. It does vary between the providers, but you have to anticipate that your pharmacist initially is going to spend quite a bit of time on their formal training. And that's when I say that's the... Um, investment you need to make but the return you'll get after that 18 month period when they have their IP and they've completed the pathways of course now you have a ready-to-go practitioner who can start to really take on quite a lot of workload within your practice so it's, it's worthwhile. It's can I pick up on that Graham? Um, so there will be some who haven't worked with pharmacy colleagues before in general practice maybe they were too small to access the, the pharmacists uh, through the last wave of general practice forward view uh, funding who are now looking more seriously at this, um, we've said it's, it's more than just medication review, although clearly that's important. What value 
to pharmacists bring to general practice and to primary care networks? So I always say the most important thing from my perspective is the expertise in medications. So that's what we bring. The patients with multiple medications, often with lots of comorbidities, most practitioners who don't have the expertise in um, medicines would feel a little bit out of their depth. And I think the key expertise that pharmacists bring is around the safe and effective, pragmatic use of medications. Nobody doubts that we over-medicate a lot of these patients, often with the best intentions, but the medicines, of course, can do harm. So to my mind, this key expertise your pharmacist brings is the ability to, to manage those patients with complex medication regimes. Of course, in doing so, they provide both a cost-effective solution, but also they free up capacity within the surgery. So previously, the, these patients would have been seen by a mixture of, 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 of the GPs and the nurses, but now you have a key individual with the expertise to manage these medicines within your practice, and that workload can be more appropriately. So it's not just about um, the efficiencies and the capacity it brings, but it's also about bringing expertise for your patients in the practice. Building that relationship with the patient and actually for the patient to have the confidence to ask questions about the medication, take ownership of their own care, um, and pharmacists to provide a care plan that actually allows the patient to maybe think about stopping some medication safely or reviewing the need and appropriateness of certain medication. Um, obviously with the involvement of the DARES contract, we're looking at med structured medication use reviews in 2020 and enhanced care home services um, in that year as well. But also for this year alone, so we've got the extended hours and improved access to, to look at. So there's no, there's no reason why if you've got a, a skilled enough pharmacist to be able to do that, they could do that. Or whether it could be medicines reconciliation, post-hospital discharge, and it's out of you know traditional surgery hours, but they want to be seen by somebody. It's no, nothing to say a pharmacist could not pick that up. Um, but also from a COF point of view, absolutely, this year looks at quality improvement schemes. How it looks at the moment is, is a bit tricky, unknown, but there's a, again, there's a lot of toolkits and the data that we can obtain from CCGs and EPAC2 and various online audit tools now that you can get hold of helps shape that, that community health-based data-driven care. Um, and that's something that pharmacists can take hold of. So sometimes a pharmacist sits really nicely between the analytical data um, sort of analysis of where we would plough in the efforts and resources to get the right outcomes. And what balance do you envisage between kind of clinical facing, seeing patients um, uh, uh, versus kind of more involvement in those kind of strategic uh, quality improvement activities? Uh, I guess it'll vary depending on the network, but I, have, you got a, have you got a figure in mind? I, I, to my mind, and I feel very strongly about this, I speak to pharmacists who've been put in back rooms and they're doing largely med traditional medicines management tasks. This is not about that. This is a patient-facing role. These are skilled clinicians whose skills that you're paying for are best utilised in helping patients face-to-face -to, -face to manage their medicines and to optimise their medicines in the most appropriate way. Yes, there's work around prescribing safety, there's, there's requirements around structured medication reviews, but the pharmacist is your key person to deliver those services and to um, 
make sure that you fulfill the requirements and the specification around theirs, and they, they will do that patient-facing. To my mind, the majority of the pharmacist's time needs to be in a clinic, sat opposite the patient, bringing their skills to bear. It might not happen initially with less experienced pharmacists, but as time goes on, it will be vital that the pharmacists see patients day in, day out, for the majority of their time. You're both sharing a clinical director role uh, in your PCNs, uh, and I know that they're quite different PCNs and your experiences have been quite different. Um, how do you think your perspective, um, from a slightly different clinical perspective as pharmacists rather than GPs, um, how do you think that changes your approach to the role? I think that PCNs have been around bringing to bear appropriate workforce for the needs of the local population. So what's important to say right from the outset is that I share this role as clinical director with the GP and we've decided that actually the workforce aspect of it would naturally fall to me. Now I'm an, I'm an evangelist when it comes to the work that pharmacists and the benefits pharmacy can bring to the population and much of our primary care is delivered by pharmacists in community but also increasingly by pharmacists working in general practice. So having managed to evolve a successful method of working where we use the whole pharmacy team, and that needs to include hospital practitioners, that needs to include community practitioners, um, but also technicians, I know that pharmacy can relieve a lot of these pressures that um, GPs and nurses are finding, both in terms of shortages of those individuals, but also their, frankly, unmanageable workload. And actually, if we can relieve that pressure and bring our expertise, it's a win-win situation and it's the patients that will benefit in the end. So having got and seen evolve elsewhere structures around pharmacy teams working in general practice at scale, um, part of the reason why I hope I was asked to become a clinical director is that my practices wanted to use that learning from elsewhere so they could bring those services to bear for their patients and I think that that's, that's my goal. My goal is to bring in a pharmacy team that will, far as we can, bring in the expertise but also relieve the pressure on the GPs so they can go back to doing what GPs want to do which is manage their patients health and if we can do that on a population level by engaging with social prescribers and physiotherapists, paramedics and, and, and other people then um, we, we, we will succeed with this. Well absolutely and so you, clearly you speak passionately about building a, a broad pharmacy team but those lessons about how we embed new staff members and colleagues in our primary care networks will be true for social prescribing link workers and others paramedics you know as we start to broaden our skill mix more widely um helen what's what's your been your experience so we don't have such a, a mature pharmacy team we have basically me and um, another pharmacist in a neighbouring surgery. So we literally have a blank page to kind of scope how this looks. So where my strengths come in is actually looking at service redesign and actually service evaluation. How do we improve what we've got? How do we tap in to those absolute diamonds that we've got out in community, those charity works that's going on with our Syrian refugee project um, and our looking at our regeneration of our over 60s with a diverse multicultural background. How do we get everybody involved in these communities? Because it's so diverse in Birmingham. And actually that's where my skill set is, is, is networking and reaching out to these communities. And I've been really lucky through social media, if anything, 
being quite open and honest as I am, I've just managed to make these connections happen with other social link workers, organisations, local charities, uh, and people that really want to do well. So we've had some really passionate patients through our um, patient participation groups at the surgery, and we want to tap into that. So I've worked um, with the Fit Board, which is a, a non-profitable organisation that looks at injection technique and we have a, a patient on the board who's living really well with type 1 diabetes and what's been really interesting is that co-production with a patient on the board and I'd like to bring that to the PCN so that whatever you know, project that we get off the ground is a really meaningful one where the communities feel their voice has been heard and they have the influence to actually shape the way that we design healthcare services for the future, not for managing conditions, but also preventing conditions and actually understanding how well we can live better. Um, so it's a different sort of um, way of looking at things for general practice. And I think that's where my viewpoint is completely different from, from my fellow GP. Purely, I think, if anything, out of capacity. So it's just to understand what resources have I got out there in the community that I can utilise that will help with priorities for the local health community. Um, and how can I get more traction in what we're doing locally? Because the more people we get behind the vision of what we want to do as a PCN, then it, it, we have more of a buy-in overall from other surgeries and from a wider STP network. So you've talked a bit about how being a clinical pharmacist sort of influences your perspective as a, as a clinical director in a PCN. But as far as we know, there are only two of you. Maybe there's a third out there somewhere. If there is, get in touch. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about how you came to be appointed and how that's affected the way you've approached the job. Yeah, I think our experiences are really quite different. Um, I was aware that this uh, election of clinical directors was to take place. We had our meeting and I, there was quite literally like a hustings, each of those, per, per, there were four of us who were interested in the role. Each of us made our, our, our pitch, if you like. And, um, and then there was a rather um, convoluted voting process. Um, and I think having been voted into the role, um, what it does is it gives me a certain honeymoon period perhaps, it gives me that certain credibility to to, to, to make my voice heard and I think that, that I'm grateful for that now having been through that process that the, the being elected to the role allows me to have that certain latitude to um, really try and develop the, the network. I imagine that's slightly unusual I think uh, well Helen what was your experience? So because of my work in South Worcestershire being a, a locality lead um, looking after a population size of about 50,000 uh, for the previous years um, I put my name in the hat, so I saw the declaration of interest and I just thought, well, what have I got to lose? Um, so I put my name in the hat thinking, actually, a lot of these GPs don't know me very well, my surgery know me very well, um, and they're quite strong influencers in the, the locality. Uh, and they were the ones that championed me to the other surgeries and said, look, we've got a really good pharmacist in our surgery who's done similar work before, she would add value as a clinical director. It would bring a fresh lease of life to the way that we operate. 
And I thought nothing of it. And then I literally rocked up to work on the Monday and they were like, oh, by the way, you're clinical director for Pioneers Health. <laughs> um, and I was just like, okay, fine. Um, and I said, does everyone agree? And we were like, as far as they're aware, we've had no contesting. And I was just like, okay, fine. I was ready for a big speech. I was ready for a power talk. Um, and I walked into the first board meeting and the first question was asked was, why do you think you should be a clinical director? What credentials do you have? Um, and I was the only female in the, on the board. And I was just like, okay. So I reeled off everything that I'd done for the past three, four years, everything that I've been able to bring in, in a way of financial income, how I've been able to streamline services, improve quality of care, looking at patient questionnaires and everything that I've been able to do over the three years. But not just within my practice, but as a locality. Um, and um, yeah, so that kind of silence. Quite that. a challenging start to, yeah. a, to a job. Um, yeah. yeah. So, well, can I pick up on that? Because so quite challenging, um, only female in the room, yeah. the, the only pharmacist I imagine in the room. Yeah. Um, and, and we're surprised that there aren't more, well, we're not surprised, but it's we're sort of, I guess, um, disappointed there aren't more pharmacists and more uh, nurses and, and other um, professional groups um, putting themselves forward for these roles. Um, so I guess I got, I got two questions. How have you gone about dividing the role of CD between you and your and the GPs you're sharing the role with? Um, and how can we encourage more uh, clinicians from, from, uh, with other perspectives to put themselves forward for this kind of role in future? So from my perspective, I've, we divided it right from the very start. It was clear that workforce would naturally fall to me and expanding the workforce in general practice is an area that I've been involved with for years now. And the operational side would, would fall to my GP colleague. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. I think as I look around, a lot of CDs are realising that they're swamped with the workload, with the meetings, with all the rest of it. So I think, let's be sensible about this. If you're a CD, you feel like I can't get, possibly get to all of these meetings. Why not appoint, appoint a deputy? Why not think about the allied professionals, the nurses, the pharmacists, the physios? Bring them in. They can offer you help with all these endless meetings and give them that start as a deputy, perhaps. And before you know it, you'll have transformed them into leaders and they'll be able to take up some of this workload that we so desperately need. This thing, this PCN, this piece of work is around sharing the workload. So share the clinical director role with them, with your pharmacists and your nurses, with your other allied professionals. And what you'll find is the breadth of experience they bring to bear will assist you with delivering a successful network. The conversations I've had with other clinical directors that are GPs is they weren't aware fully that they could share with someone that wasn't a GP. They felt that actually by taking on the whole role it saved another GP's time, if that makes sense. Um, they didn't realise they could share with somebody else. So perhaps Graham's idea of, of thinking now, are there ways you can bring people with you on that leadership sort of journey? Are there, um, and if you are a pharmacist or a nurse or a paramedic, you're listening to this, you know, why not go and talk to your clinical director and see if there's something you can do to assist them and, and, and get more involved? Because there's lots of work to go around, isn't there? And I think that the way that the PCN is set up, it is organic. And this can, you know, these clinical director titles can move. So actually there, there is scope and capacity to maybe bring in a second clinical director or deputy clinical director. It's, it's how we work together and how best share the responsibility and the workload. Because we're not getting away from the fact that this PCN work is immense. 
And the more disciplines that you get around the table, the more input that you get and different perspectives um, and a shared responsibility of how things will shape in the future. I think it's fair to say that most PCNs, including mine, uh, are pleased to have had ink on paper and got their agreement signed at this stage. Um, some of our practices have very well de developed um, patient groups and typically those patient groups are led by several often retired uh, patients who have skills that will assist us in our network and we recognise that. So I think my, our idea is that we will bring together those engaged patients and ask them exactly how they feel that we need to now inform our patients that we're going to be working jointly in networks and the benefits that could potentially bring to them and then hear from them what they feel their priorities may be and how a network of GP practices might now be able to improve their care going forward and obviously extended hours has been a priority initially because that is really important to a lot of our patients. You know, in London a lot of people commuting, actually being able to come into a practice at earlier in the morning or later in the evening to, to get their needs met is going to be important. So I think if I'm honest it's very early stages. We're aware that this is important work and we have started conversations with our PPGs, with our patient participation groups, but we at this stage um, are, it's too early to say where they'll go. What I would say is that the practices increasingly feel to me like they're open to this in a way that they perhaps weren't before. That they're incentivised obviously, but actually they're increasingly realising the benefits of working together on these things because now services can be provided by their colleagues in the network allowing their patients to access those um, access those services that they couldn't provide on their own. And I think that's the key point about mm. PCNs. Working together makes you stronger. You're stronger than the sum of your parts. So what we intend to do, what we would look to do, and I know Helen's done a little bit of this, is you need to engage with local politicians, you need to engage with the third sector, as it's called, the voluntary sector, our charities. And actually, this very week, I saw a patient who I'd struggled with. She's had talking therapies. She's on maximum treatment for her anxiety disorder. And almost as she was leaving, said to me, you know, the one thing that really helps me is swimming. And all these conversations that I've been having in the network around social prescribing suddenly came to the fore. And sure enough, take the trouble to find out she was in a neighbouring borough, she lives in a neighbouring borough, and sure enough, they do have a discount scheme and a mentoring scheme that does include mental health patients at the local um, leisure centre. And we were able to engage there. So thinking to our link workers and our social prescribers, I actually can't wait to have an individual working in the network that will be able to help me direct patients to much more meaningful lifestyle interventions and assist me with that. Because if I'm honest, my patients don't live in the surgery, they live in the community. And whilst I can do my best, when I see them, perhaps once a month even, um, actually what we really need is engaging patients to, to help them to find the right services that work for them, in this case, swimming, something as basic as that. And that, you know, this narrative around how we think wider around our population's needs, I think is coming home. And I heard um, a social prescriber speaking and the GP sat next to me, told me he'd been doing this job wrong for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And actually opening our minds to the opportunities where we can get much more involved in a patient, improving their, lifestyle and the ways we can do that, practically how we can do that, I think is a key thing for PCNs and if nothing else changes through this whole process, it's engaging patients with um, improving their health outcomes via a whole range of different inputs that aren't just medicines, that aren't just um, operations and the traditional medical model 
And that's what I really hope for. And I think engaging patients in what they need is going to be key here. So to my mind, we start with our PPGs and we find out from them what they feel would be helpful and I'll bet it will be what services are available to us local, how do we engage with those services and, and how can you help us to make sure that we can find those services that we need. That is an amazing, uh, positive and uplifting note uh, to end on. Um, Graham and Helen, thank you both so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you both and good luck uh, in your endeavours over the next couple of months in your PCNs. I do hope you found the podcast useful and it's given you some ideas to take away and try in your area. We've covered loads of ideas from um, introducing pharmacists in new roles and how to support them to uh, encouraging existing pharmacists and other um, healthcare professionals to share some of the leadership around developing our primary care networks. If you've got any other ideas of things you'd like us to cover in the podcast or things you'd like to feature um, and you'd like us to come and talk to you, then please do get in touch. You can email us at england.pcn at nhs.net. In the meantime, you can find out more about the work that we're doing to support primary care networks on the website at www.england.nhs.uk forward slash PCN. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>